0: You're listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. I'm your host, Bradley Caro and it's really a pleasure today to have Farah Trumpeter, who's the vice president at Big Dump. It's a firm that develops the voices of determined nonprofits by developing strong brands, campaigns, and teams. Farah's on the board of N10 and an adjunct professor at NYU Graduate School of Public Service. Farah, welcome.
1: Thanks, Bradley. It's great to be here.
0: It's really just a pleasure to have you here and thanks for bringing your wisdom today and your story. At a high level, could you share with us about Big Duck and what it does?
1: Sure. You did a great job in the opening spiel, but briefly, Big Duck is a communications firm that works with nonprofits. We recently celebrated our 25 year anniversary and we really focus on helping organizations figure out how they can use communications to achieve their mission at the simplest, highest level. And that means we're looking at things like, you've got a strategic plan, you've got a vision you're trying to achieve, how can we use communications to support that? Whether that is in supporting and reaching donors, in supporting and reaching program participants, activists, volunteers, whatever it may be, how do we make sure all the different ways you're communicating are ultimately laddering up to achieving your mission? So that is kind of at the highest level what we do. We do break down our work in those three areas you mentioned. Brands campaigns and teams where the branding campaigns are probably the biggest areas of our work So branding is really looking at the holistic story and voice of an organization How do they want people to see uh, to see them? What do they want people to think about them and how do we then craft their assets like their visuals and their messaging to tell that story and Make sure the experience of their brand really does come back to that strategy Then we look at things like campaigns, which we differentiate as trying to get a much more specific audience to take a particular action. Oftentimes that is giving and donating, but it might also be signing up for a program, maybe even changing how you feel about an issue or the kind of action you take. And then the last area of work, Teams, is really about structure and strategy of communication. So we do a lot of work helping organizations determine how they really should be prioritizing their communication strategies and tactics. Also looking at how does communications work with other departments? What should be the real goals for communications or purpose for communications at your organization? And from there, figuring out the right framework and team you need to
0: succeed. That's amazing. Covering all of the the communication is so important for a nonprofit and having someone to go to, to address those issues really drives a success so many times. I'm curious, could you share with us your story about what led you to where you are today, both as a communications executive, but also one of the leading voices for nonprofits globally?
1: Well, thank you. I didn't know my reach was global. So I'm feeling I'm feeling a lot of love right now from you, Bradley. Thank you. (laughs) So well, at Big Duck, let me just pause and explain what I do there. And then I can go back in time to how I got to this point. I've been at Big Duck for 13 years and currently my role is really focused on our business development and marketing. So really, you know, what we want people to think and feel about us and how to really build relationships both with clients and prospects. I, at the heart of it, and I'll go, I'll go back shortly, I first was a fundraiser and I think fundraising and good communications have the same thing in common, which is all about building good relationships and that's in essence what I do for Big Duck. I also play a role on our strategy team and do a lot of training and capacity building. At the heart of it, I love teaching, It's why I teach on the side. It's what so so much of what I appreciate about how Big Duck works with its clients, which really aligns with my philosophy. We wanna teach people how to do what they need to do, not do it for them. So that's very much ingrained in who I am and also how we work. My backstory can go pretty far back. I'll try and keep it relatively high level. Uh, I like to say I was born an activist. Uh, I grew up in Long Island, New York, uh, and grew up in a family that uh, was very much one who looked at the world and and looked for ways to solve problems. In particular, my father, when I was growing up in, in the 1980s and in elementary school, was very involved in a group called The Hunger Project. And so, in third grade, I was organizing a bake sale to end hunger, and then doing a walkathon or a moveathon to try and get people to donate to um, issues around hunger. And that was just something I did as a kid, and I was the only kid doing that. And that seemed a little weird to the other kids, but that was what I was. What's what I thought everyone was supposed to do. And that just continued as I then went into middle school and high school. And uh, at when I was 13, a very pivotal thing happened, which was my brother's best friend, one of his best friends was killed by a drunk driver. She was 10 years older than me, but sort of like an older sister. And this idea of someone being killed by something that could have been prevented was really traumatic for me, but also, because of this sort of upbringing I had, led me to say, what can I do about it? Not just be mired in the sadness of it. And so at that age, in eighth grade, I started a chapter of Students Against Driving Drunk, sad, which again, in the 80s was kind of a, was a thing happening in schools. I'm not sure if it is anymore. And then as I got into high school, built our sad chapter, was involved on a state level in New York, got involved in student government, which again, somebody who did things. Then when I got to college, and I I went to a few different schools, but ultimately wound up at American University in DC, I thought originally I was going to go into politics. Again, I had this, I want to make the world a better place. People do that through politics, right? And what I found was, actually, there's this thing called nonprofits, and there's a whole sector and world you could work in where you can do this. And I wound up gravitating to that. And when I was in college, I wound up getting a part-time job as a telefundraiser calling for nonprofits and political uh, causes, and found that I was good at it. Turns out I'm a good talker, and when I care about something and I'm passionate about it, I can get people to give money. So that this became my life originally in fundraising, <laughs> and I was very passionate about women's health issues and just generally feminism issues. So in my early career in the 90s, I was working for a lot of women's organizations But I think there was always an overlay of communications behind it. I feel sort of fortunate or enough that, you know, I got my first email address when I was in college. The idea of sort of technology and the way it's emerged in the past few decades, I was kind of growing up professionally as things like that were happening. As nonprofits were creating websites, I was working in companies trying to figure out how to do website marketing for government agencies and nonprofits. As nonprofits, as social media was arising and people were trying to figure out how to get people to give to your website and build a relationship over email or what to do with Facebook or LinkedIn when all of these tools started emerging, in the aughts, I was working for companies that were trying to figure out how to do online fundraising and online advocacy for nonprofits. So for many years, I was bouncing back and forth between working in-house and nonprofits, either in fundraising or communications or working for consulting firms whose clients were all nonprofits. Eventually, I was living in D.C. for about 10 years, then I was in San Francisco for two. I wound up coming back to New York about 15 years ago. In part, my family was here, I had this sort of midlife quarter-century, whatever moment it is when you turn 30, milestone moment, and I thought, what do I want to be, where do I want to be? and I realized I wanted to be in New York and I did want to go back to school, but I wanted to go back to school in the field I knew I wanted to stay in, which, that, which was nonprofits. So I came back to New York, went to the new school here in New York in nonprofit management, got a master's in that, wondered potentially about becoming an executive director, ultimately decided I'm kind of a, a better fit because of my attention span. In some ways of being a consultant, I love coming in and out, working with lots of different organizations, And so while I was in grad school, I wound up working, uh, connecting with a professor, working for a company called Douglas Gould and Company, who was mostly a PR firm whose clients were all nonprofits. And I was brought in to help them figure out how to build an online engagement practice. And a few years into it, I met this woman named Sarah Durham, who was running a company called Big Duck in Brooklyn. And as I met Sarah and learned about what they did, I really felt like a a much better fit for kind of who I was and what I was doing and where I wanted to go at that time. So I started working at Big Duck in 2007 and was one of the first full-time strategists that the company had. And from there helped grow the company now to where we're twice the size we were at that point. And we've sort of expanded our work again into those areas I mentioned.
0: What a great story. Leveraging your passions and your abilities and finding new marketplaces. And I love that. And, and thanks for sharing that with us. Now, sure. going into what's your superpower and area of expertise, which is helping nonprofits, I'd love to ask you a couple questions about what nonprofits can do to be their best. So my first question is, why should nonprofits make communication a priority?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of nonprofits see communications as a luxury item. It is often the first thing that gets cut when there is a recession or some other kind of budget deficit. And it is hard to argue if you're you're a direct service organization and you're trying to feed people or offer some counseling services or meet critical needs, getting out that monthly newsletter versus making sure you can deliver meals. I want you to deliver meals. I want you to be the people that need to be fed. But I think when we then pause our communications in those moments, people might forget about us. And I think particularly now more than ever, which is a phrase that gets overused, but I'm gonna use it, or I'll say in this moment, perhaps better. You know, here we are in a moment where we are overloaded with communications, where there are always a million tabs open on our computers, our phones are buzzing with notifications, there are more apps than we can imagine on our phones coming out every day. There are you know, things in the mail still coming in, things coming at us all the time. So that's how everyone is feeling. So your nonprofit's ability to not just get on the radar of someone that's trying to reach, again, whether that is a potential client or participant, whether that's a donor or an activist, uh, whether that's a staff or a board member, whoever you're trying to reach, they are bombarded. Getting on their radar is hard. Staying on their radar is even harder. And one of the things we think a lot about is kind of building mindshare, which is there's it's so hard to get in in someone's brain and building real estate. How can you first get there and stay there? And when your nonprofit figures out how to do that, you will have a much better chance of meeting your mission, right? So if communications is used strategically and with intention, it can help you reach more people, feed those people you need to, get the money you need to deliver the services, Uh, have the right people working for you or volunteering for you. And that's so communications, I think, really at the heart of it is critical, should be at the undercurrent of an organization. Uh, Sarah, my boss and our CEO, just wrote a new book called The Nonprofit Communications Engine. And one of the things that she says in that book is that, you know, if you can imagine all the different puzzle pieces in a nonprofit that bring it together, there's programs, there's development, there's government relations, and those are all different puzzle pieces that form for the organization, communications is like the shellac, right, on the bottom of the, on all of those puzzle pieces, but that you need to hold the puzzle together. And that's really, I think, if people can think about communications that way, I hope perhaps they can better see how it can be helpful and really useful in accomplishing what they need to do.
0: Well, I'm definitely sold. How should a nonprofit determine if their brand is working or needs to change?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and one that we uh, talk about every day. I mean, at the heart of it is first being really clear on what a brand is. I think when most people hear the B word, uh, they might think immediately of a logo or maybe a color or the name of an organization. And those are all what we call brand assets. And those are important parts of the brand identity. But we always want at the heart of it to think about the strategy of our brand. And some of the elements of a brand strategy include the goals, the audiences, and what we call positioning and personality. And even above that is, again, where an organization is going. So ideally, an organization has some kind of strategic plan or vision or roadmap for where it needs to go in the next three, five, 10, 15 years, right? What does the future look like in the world? And where is that organization going to meet that future need or desire to scale or whatever it may be? from there asking the question okay if that's where we're trying to go as an organization what do what do we need communications to do for us so we can go there if we're trying to expand into new locations well we need our we need to make sure our story holds up in different places or reach different audiences a lot of times organizations when they are growing they're sort of seen or thought of who they used to be five or ten years ago not who they are now and not where they're going so if that's a challenge we have to be clear about again how do we need our communications to shift who do we need to bring on that journey with us who are the most important audiences to really understand what we do now and where we're going and then from there what do we want those people to think and feel about us there's one big idea in their minds about us what should that be and if there's certain attributes or adjectives we want them to associate with us what do we want those to be And again, if an organization is changing or has never been intentional about that, it may find that when it pauses to think about how do I want people to think and feel about me, then it looks at things like its name, its logo, its tagline, its messaging. It may find those things are out of sync, right? And so that's how you know. So the first is, are we clear about where we're going? What are our goals for communications? Who do we need to reach? And what do we want those people to think and feel about us? Once we've determined that, then the question is, what's the gap between what I want people to think and feel about me and who I really need to know who I am and what those people think and feel about me now? For some organizations, you might not even be on their radar. For others, again, they may have a misperception about you or an outdated one. And then the question is, what elements of your brand assets are contributing to that gap or that disconnect? And what can we change to alleviate it? So for many organizations, sometimes the most obvious is they they have a geographical name or population named in their name, and they no longer just work in that area or with that population. The XYZ Community Center for Brooklyn, and here I am now trying to expand into Queens and Staten Island or throughout Manhattan, or I'm the XYZ organization of New York, and now I want to go national, having that name, or even to, you know, California that might hold me back. Or I'm a national organization that wants to go global, but my name says something national in it, right? Those are some of the most obvious. But a little deeper than that is really looking at color, typography. Again, words we use to describe us, those can all reinforce or confuse the message we want people to associate with us. So if I want people to think and feel a certain way about me, but my brand assets are telling a different story, that's gonna be problematic. Now at the end of the day, I sometimes say, your brand is what other people say it is, right? And, and your brand is so much crafted by the experiences people have with you. So I can have the best looking logo, an awesome name and tagline, great messaging on my website, but if somebody calls and we never call them back, if somebody writes all these messages on our Facebook page and we've never commented, somebody sends a note that they wanna go off our mailing list and we keep sending them something, that's gonna create a very negative experience. And then you will, your perception is now sunk. So it's important to first kind of get the house in order and then really think about those everyday moments, somebody experiences your organization and understand how you can train everyone who works with you um, and engage them really to be ambassadors of the brand and really make sure that's carried across every interaction if we're really going to have our brand be successful. For some organizations, all the elements are right. All the assets line up, they are reinforcing that strategy, but they have lost the experience of their brand, so the website isn't working or communicates a different feeling. Or they wanna be seen as friendly and accessible, and you have to go through a phone system that takes 20 minutes till you get somebody live on the phone. Those, are, those things, feeling like how to connect the dots is really crucial.
0: That's amazing. What are some tips nonprofits can try to communicate better with donors?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is I often recommend that people do a test drive of their own giving experience. So use a friend's computer or significant others. Get, make sure you're not on a computer that's got all the stuff in your organization saved on it. Go to the website, try and make a donation. What happens on screen? How soon and what comes in your inbox as a receipt? Uh, if your organization accepts donations by phone or by mail, make a $5 gift in those methods and see what happens. How soon do you get that acknowledgement? You know, make up a name, make up a Gmail or an email address, just to see like how you get treated in that experience. And then do the same with two or three other organizations that are just like you, that your donors might also give to, or you Google kind of the area you work in and maybe the location and see what other nonprofits come up examine their giving experience because there's a good chance that your donors are giving to organizations like that. And how do you compare? So the first is like really kind of do a little test drive of your giving experience and those of others. The second is to talk to some of your donors. Why do they give to you? What drives them? What do they think about your communications? When was the last time? What do they remember reading or seeing or hearing about you? What do they love about what do you do? What do they wonder about? Like understand the motivations of your current donors, especially the ones that have been the most loyal and the most engaged. And then maybe talk to a few if they will talk to you that are lapsed and have been unengaged and find out why they left and who else they give to. I found a lot of organizations don't know the answers to why people give to them. They just are excited these gifts are coming in and then they have these challenges with retention. There's also a chance to look at the data. There's a lot that data can tell us. You know, what, what type, what's happening with our open and click-through rates on the emails we're sending? What kind of insights can we glean by looking at the analytics on, from our website, from our social media pages, um, any kind of campaigns we're doing? When we sent out our last mailing or letter or whatever it is, did we hear back about it? What are we learning and how is that compared over time? Not just what happened to the last thing we did, but what happened the year before and the year after that, looking at the data to see if there are any year over year trends. So even just like taking stock of who we have and what we've been doing before we try new things. So I, you know, I think that's really important. And then from there, it's really looking at the tone and the content of how we're communicating. I find that a lot of organizations sometimes take a very different stance based on the communications channel they're using. And it is true that there are some norms and best practices Or, you know, what goes into a direct mail letter versus what goes into a tweet. And yet, who you are should kind of still feel like shadows of the same person, not 10 different people based on those 10 different channels. So I think doing an audit of how you're communicating to donors, and not just through fundraising appeals, because chances are your donors are also getting other updates you're doing. So the first thing, you know, again, I think my biggest recommendation is take a pulse of where you are, give yourself a little bit of a checkup, compare yourself to peer organizations, analyze what you've been doing, and then look for any opportunities and insights for what you can do better. And again, this is where getting on the list of organizations like yours can be really helpful because not only will you start learning how frequently and the kind of tone and style and conversation your peers are using, you might get some new ideas.
0: Oh, that's great. I know I'm excited to to give that a try with my nonprofit. So How do people get in touch with you? Like, How do they have the opportunity to work with Big Duck?
1: Probably the easiest thing is to go to our website, which is just bigduck.com. You can learn more about us, and there's a contact form there. You can also just send an email anytime to hello at bigduck.com. That will make its way to me and other folks who work there. Um, If you want to find me, I'm on all the channels. There are no other ferret trumpeters out there that I know of. On many of these channels, I'm either just Farrah or my full name. So for example, on Twitter and LinkedIn, you can just you know, go to twitter.com or linkedin.com slash Farrah and find me. So those are some of the ways. You can also drop me an email. It's just Farrah, F-A-R-R-A, at bigduck.com.
0: Well, I know I'm going to be taking you up on that. So thank you so much for being here today and all of the good that you do. And I wish you tremendous success in all your worthy endeavors.
1: You as well. Thanks so much for having me, Bradley.
0: You've been listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. If you know an executive director or nonprofit professional that you think I should interview, shoot me an email at, Bradley at GrowthExponential.org.